Good morning once again. Well, we've arrived. Uh, it's our last week in the book of 1 John. And uh, I think I can speak for the rest of the preaching team that it's been both uh, an affirming and a somewhat challenging experience to teach through the book of 1 John. If you are, uh, or if you've been around for most of the series, I, I hope that you have found it to be so as well. Some affirmation, some challenge. And if, the, if this is your first time at Artisan or you're a guest with us today, I welcome you to the final leg of the journey. Um, we're in chapter 5 today, uh, all of it, all 21 verses, for better or worse. And uh, the apostle opens with these three words, everyone who believes. He is, of course, going to get more specific, but as I've been sitting with this text this week, this phrase, these three words have caught my attention It's had me spending a lot of time reading about and reflecting on the nature of belief itself. And I I came across an article written a couple of years ago by a, a science journalist named Graham Lawton. He begins this way. The day I sat down to write this article, the the news was rather like any other day. A teenager had been found guilty of plotting to behead a British soldier. Fighting had broken out again in Ukraine. Greece was accusing its creditors of being motivated by ideology rather than economic reality. Some English football fans were filmed racially abusing a man on the Paris subway. In post-occupy Hong Kong, a clash over quote-unquote artistic differences within the Hong Kong Chinese orchestra was turning nasty. Admittedly, all of that day's stories were unique in themselves, but at the root they were all about the same thing. The powerful and very human attribute we call belief. Then he says this, beliefs define how we see the world and act within it. Without them, there would be no plots to behead soldiers, no war, no economic crises, no racism and no showdowns between musicians. There would also be no cathedrals, no nature reserves, no science, and no art. Whatever beliefs you hold, it's hard to imagine life without them. Beliefs more than anything else, are what make us human. I hadn't thought about beliefs in quite these terms before, maybe in a similar way, but not exactly this language. And when we step back and think about it, isn't it true that you can draw a line between every story we encounter to some set of beliefs, whether conscious or unconscious or acknowledged or otherwise? Beliefs can be exceedingly dangerous. If they're carried too far, If they're held too tightly, if they're placed in the wrong thing, they can cause unspeakable harm. This is a song, it's a bit of an odd reference, but this is a song by an artist some of you might recognize that puts the negative effects of militantly held beliefs quite starkly. What puts 100,000 children in the sand? Belief can. Belief can. What puts a folded flag inside his mother's hand? Belief can. Belief can. I don't think I've ever quoted John Mayer in a sermon before, but... (laughs) First time for everything. Uh, On the other hand, beliefs can also hold the potential for incredible good. There's no way the civil rights movement could have happened without belief. There's no way the Truth and Reconciliation Commission could have happened without belief. The list goes on and on. It's easy to see the whole spectrum. Even so, every once in a while, I have a conversation with someone or read about someone who claims they would prefer to live in a world without beliefs. The world of enlightenment, the world of pure rationality and common sense, where everything can be chalked up to reason and fact. But we know instinctively that that ship has sailed, don't we? 
To, to be human is to have beliefs. At some level, every human being, by definition, is a person of faith. Ironically, even John Lennon's imagine is a faith statement of sorts. When he says, imagine there's no religion, is he not simply implying a belief that we would be better off in a world without religion than with it? Daniel Taylor says this, anyone who has claimed that one thing is better than another is a person of faith. Whether it's an important claim, the truth is better than falsehood, justice than oppression, love than hate, life than death, or a trivial claim, dogs are better than cats, baseball than football, apple pie than cherry. If there is an implied value or an ought in the claim, then there is an implied faith that cannot be entirely confirmed by reason, facts, or any operation of the intellect. We all have beliefs. We all believe in, believe in stuff every single day. And whether we realize it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, the way we live, the way we treat other people flows out of a system of belief. We live by faith. That is... We believe certain things to be true and therefore worthy of being trusted. And the Apostle John, of course, assumes a worldview where belief is at the center. And I'd contend that things haven't changed all that much from his day. We just embody it in different ways. Maybe we're more covert about our beliefs. Maybe we hold them a bit more tenuously. Maybe they're unconscious. Or maybe they're entirely unacknowledged. But the big question for him, and I believe for us, is what we choose to believe in. And he's writing to a group of people who believe in a very specific thing for a very specific reason. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's writing to people whose beliefs are united by a common story. They're together in it as we are. Now why did this need to be said? Now, the answer to that question brings us back to what prompted John to write the letter at all and to the heart of this concluding chapter. As we've said, we we all operate according to beliefs, but who among us hasn't experienced our own beliefs being challenged, stretched, pummeled, whatever verb you want to use? What do you do when that happens? What does it take to reinforce belief, to, to fortify faith? That's what we're going to take a look at this morning as we open up this text together. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we do this. So Holy Spirit, as we open this text, we do just ask for that. We ask for the insight and revelation of your spirit to be present with us. We pray that you give us courage to hear, open our ears, open our hearts, open our imaginations to what this could look like in our stories as we seek to learn from this text, to stand under it, and, uh, and to walk in it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you haven't already found it, I invite you, if you'd like to, uh, join me at First John 5 on your chair Bibles. It's on page 857. And so it's a longish text, as I've already alluded to. So settle in, get comfortable, and we're going to read the text. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Who does not have the Son, whoever does not have the Son, does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's like a little P.S. at the end. By the way, true God, not idols. So true to form, John is all over the map. One of the preaching challenges I was alluding to is that this letter is really hard to outline. So it's really difficult to sketch out a direction for a sermon. And add to that the fact that we're looking not at just six or eight or ten verses, but 21 verses of John doing this. Now, note, none, if, I just realized this, and I mentioned it, I think, to Scott and maybe Lance. None of the First John commentaries that we've been reading as we've looked through this series even bother trying to create structural outlines for these texts. And yet, somehow, I have felt emboldened to attempt something even N.T. Wright didn't do. It's a theological throwdown right now. So, it's probably foolish, but here's how I see this text hanging together. Two parts. First... Believing in the Incarnation. It's verses 1 to 12. Second part, knowing that flows from believing. 13 to 21. So most scholars agree, and this is where I feel a bit of confidence, most scholars agree that verse 13 is the clearest statement of purpose in the entire letter, let alone this text. So verse 13 is the reason John wrote it. So I see it also then as the hinge. I think it's the interpretive link between these two parts. So follow along as I read it one more time. Verse 13. Um, See if I can find it. Yeah. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. I write to you who believe that you may know. Right? Totally hangs together. We'll see. Um, So in the first part of the text, belief and faith are the central themes. The word believe or a form of it occurs six times in the opening 12 verses. And then the second part, John is telling his readers what they can know or be assured of on the basis of that belief. 
and the word no happens seven times in the concluding nine verses. So because he's on about repetition all through the letter, I think we can get a pretty good clue by what he tends to state more often than not. So each part breaks down a little further, of course, so let's take a, a bit of a closer look. The first half, if the first half is indeed about believing in Christ, then verses 1 to 5 seem to be mostly about what that belief looks like. First part of verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So belief in Jesus is a sign that a person is born of God. And this is a familiar theme in John, in his gospel in particular. What's he saying? The image is, first of all, a reminder to his readers that there's a kind of birth that's different from the natural kind. This is a new birth. It's a birth that's initiated by God. And it's mediated through his spirit. It's the kind of birth that happens in connection with faith in Christ. So in a sense, he's saying, you who have signed on with Jesus have been fathered by the living God. You're now part of this family. This is a new birth. Not only so, but the second part of one. And everyone who loves the father loves the child as well. Love this image. Another translation makes it even more explicit. This is the common English Bible. Whoever loves someone who is a parent loves the child born to the parent. Right? We all love Juniper because she has arrived because we've come to know and love um, Andy and Jessica. I can say I love Berlin Gillespie because I have grown to love Alexia and Greg. I love Anders Odegaard because I've known and loved his parents for many, many years. My parents... An extended family's love for our daughter, Adriana, your love for Adri, flows out of your love for Terry and for me. What's John's point in raising this analogy? This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. So the image is offered to remind us of one of the key implications of belief. When you love the parent, you love the child. When you love God, you're one of his kids, and that means you need to love his other kids. How is that love evidenced? Well, we would expect John to say, by loving one another. But he doesn't. Twist. He says, by loving God and carrying out his commands, which of course includes loving one another. But to put it another way, what he's saying here is that belief in Christ and love for God are verified through practice. So what if the thing that makes a person a true believer in Jesus is not ticking certain theological boxes? or signing off on a doctrinal statement of faith? What if it's not about that? What if it's about living differently? Love what Beekner says about this. Believing in Jesus is not the same as believing things about him. Instead, it is a matter of giving our hearts to him, of come hell or high water, putting our money on him. The way the child believes in a mother or a father, the way a mother or a father believes in a child. Whoa. This is belief that looks and feels more like loving surrender rather than strict obedience to a list of demands. True faith means a changed life. It means an altered course. It's moving in a new direction. In the same breath, John is quick to say that this is an expectation that shouldn't feel heavy. Verse 3. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. Contrary to popular opinion, God is not a cruel taskmaster. Remember last week, chapter 4, we said it probably 800 times. God is love. And that means everything God does is out of love, including his instruction 
on how to live, which like any good parent means setting up some clear boundaries designed both for our protection as well as our freedom. Jesus himself took it upon himself to make this really clear. In Matthew's gospel, we hear these familiar words. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See, it's not about adding burdens. It's about him taking them. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Text continues this way. His commands are not burdensome. Why? For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is victory, the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So someone says, this is all well and good. What's the connection between God's commands not being burdensome and those born of God? It sounds like they've been given some kind of superpower. And what's all this talk of victory, overcoming the world? It sounds a bit triumphalist not to mention a little bit elitist. So first off, in this context, we need to recall that when John says world, he's essentially meaning the world's ways. He's referring to systems and power structures that set themselves up against God. So it's not about the physical world and all that it contains, that which we are supposed to love. And so when John uses language about the victory that overcomes, don't think of a superhero showdown or a boxing match. Apparently there was one on last night, and so this is on everyone's radar. It's not particularly helpful to think of that. It's victory in the sense that our faith aligns us with a better way of being human. It's a way that's not about self-centeredness and self-deception, a way that doesn't reduce people to functions. It's a way that does not mix well with conventional power politics. It's the Jesus way. It's the way of the one who says, come to me. Learn from me. Watch how I do it. And that the more we say yes to that invitation, the more we begin to embody the Jesus way. The more we embody the Jesus way, the less God's commands feel like a burden. Are we seeing the connection? That's the victory that has overcome the world, according to John, that we get to be in on the way of Christ. And this is not what most people think of as victory. If you need convincing on that front, just try a Twitter search for hashtag winning and just see what comes up. In our world, if you want to get close to the rich, the powerful, the successful, you have to do so by convincing them you're not a loser. You have to make them believe you belong with the winners. With Jesus, it's totally the other way around. You get God's attention by convincing him you're one of the losers. And the good news is that Jesus loves losers. When forming his team, they're the ones he picks first. The marginalized, those that are on the outside. Jesus picks the losers first. It's good news for all of us. What John is saying here, and he of course speaks in harmony with the rest of scripture on this, is that faith in Christ is total immersion into a new way of seeing. Other New Testament writers call it the kingdom of God. God's administration. And in God's administration, winning comes through losing. We overcome by dying. We have victory and it takes on a cruciform shape. Jesus redefines completely what winning looks like. The next set of verses elaborate on this theme, even though it's a bit confusing at first, this language of water and blood and the Spirit. Well, most commentators see the water as referring to Christ's baptism, the blood to his death, and the Spirit to the Holy Spirit, as you might imagine. Eugene Peterson does a better job clarifying than I could, so I just simply want to offer 
his translation of verses 6 to 8, and I think it'll help us. It says, Jesus, the divine Christ, he experienced a life-giving birth and a death-killing death. Not only birth from the womb, but baptismal birth of his ministry and sacrificial death. And all the while, the Spirit is confirming the truth, the reality of God's presence at Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, bringing those occasions alive for us, a triple testimony, the Spirit, the baptism, the crucifixion, and the three in perfect agreement. Triple testimony. So this is courtroom language. Right? This, this is John continuing to build his case. And as we know, an argument in court is made stronger the more witnesses you have. So he's saying that these critical events in Jesus' life, including the witness of the Spirit, give us all the grounds we need to accept and to confirm the very testimony of God. 11 to 13, one more time. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, which is to say, you who believe in the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So God's testimony, in essence, is a person. Jesus is what God has to say. So we've come to the pivot point in the text, verse 13, this place where believing results in or gives way to a few different things that we can know. In the moments that remain, I want to briefly highlight the knowing that then that flows from believing. So the main thing John wants his readers to know, if you haven't picked it up by now, is that they have eternal life. Why does he keep going on about this? I want to say a few things about eternal life. First, why does it need to be said again? Well, let's begin by comparing the purpose statement of his gospel. So in the gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, it says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That you may believe. So it's clearly evangelistic. John is trying to offer good news, and he's trying to give this account of the life of Christ so that people would put their belief and their faith in him. By comparison, the letter of 1 John was written to you who believe, as in you who already believe. So it's a letter written to believers, yes, but of a particular kind. We might think of them as believers who are experiencing a crisis of faith. These were people whose beliefs were being tested. Remember again the context of 1 John. There were a lot of loud and powerful voices on the scene, They were doing a lot of things to to shake people's faith, declaring other narratives as true, trying to discredit the Jesus story, denying that he truly came in the flesh, this whole Gnostic way of thinking, this claiming special insider knowledge that these Jesus followers apparently weren't privy to, all the things John has been addressing through the letter in which we've been looking at through this series. And so all of this is disturbing. It's unsettling. Faith is being shaken. John understood this, and so his main reason for writing was to bolster their assurance. They were the ones who had truly received eternal life. They were the ones who truly knew God. They were the ones who were giving evidence of this in their lives, obeying God's commandments, loving the children of God, which amounts to loving God himself. So a bit more about eternal life. If you're like me, when you hear eternal life, you probably think unending life, Life without end, life that keeps going after death. 
Now, the whole testimony of Scripture would suggest that eternal life, while it includes those meanings, John is using it a different, in a different way. When he says the phrase eternal life, the afterlife isn't primarily what he has in mind. In 1 John, eternal life almost always refers to a present experience. One clue to this way of reading John is that life and eternal life are most often used interchangeably. Here's an example from our text, verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. It's not, and this life will be in the Son, eventually, later, when you die. It's not that. And also notice that right after John mentions eternal life in verse 13, he goes on to describe another present experience, that of prayer. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. Not This is the confidence we will have when we're in heaven someday, some glad morning when this life is over. He's talking about a present experience. So eternal life is present, says John, and you can have access to this now, but not only so, it's a relational experience. 11 and 12, one more time. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life, present tense, is in his Son. Relational experience. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So to have eternal life means to have the Son. To have Christ indwelling us. To have, capital letters, life eternal living in us. One commentator said it like this. When God gives eternal life to human beings, he gives it with his Son. That's what eternal life is. It's a person. Here's a long quote by Thomas Merton. It's so good. He says, The life of heaven, eternal life in Christ, is not simply a life without end. It is not interminable joy. Even joy, if interminable, would become dreadful. The suggestive word, interminable, contains a hint that something would be better terminated or something that would be better terminated cannot, in fact, be put to an end. It never ceases goes on forever. Who would want a joy that he could never get rid of? Eternal life, on the other hand, has nothing in it which would be better if it were ended. The very concept of an end is no longer relevant, for the goal is attained. There is, then, no more goal. There is no end. All is present and all is actual. All is pure reality. The total compact fulfillment of humanity in love and in vision not measured out in infinitely extended time, but grounded in the depths of the personal life of God and the inner dynamic of love from the abyss of the Father in the light of the Son through the love of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot there. Hopefully you stuck with it. What if the goal of Christianity isn't going to heaven when you die? What if it's something more along the lines of living in loving and ever-deepening communion with the triune God, here, now, and forever? Let me say that again. What if the goal of Christianity is not going to heaven when you die? What if it's something more along the line of living in loving and ever-deepening communion with the triune God, here, now, and forever? It seems to be another thing John wants us to know, skipping ahead to verse 19 and 20. We know that we are children of God, relational, familial language again, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 
we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is eternal life, John's saying once again. We know that we are children of God more language of relationship and of union so that we may know who is true, again, an intimate relational knowing. More and more as I read scripture through the lens of Jesus, and as I get older, I see how dangerous and how toxic it is to embrace a faith that is only concerned about the afterlife. If our so-called following of Christ has no direct and ongoing impact on life in the present, it is nothing but an empty shell of faith. And if our following of Christ is only about doing what he says and reaping the rewards without the dynamic of relationship with God and with others, it's no better than hollow, pseudo-religious activism. On the other hand, when relationship is at the center, when it's about communion and union with the living God, when eternal life is seen as a present experience of life in God and God in us, as John so clearly wants us to experience it, there's another thing that we can know. 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Let me try to say this another way. As life eternal, as Christ himself takes up residence in our lives through faith, or as John says it in his gospel, as we abide in Christ and he in us, Our wills get realigned according to the will of God. Our desires get reordered. We begin to want what God wants. And when that happens, we can pray with full assurance that we're being heard. We we can stand in the place where heaven and earth meet in the present and through prayer draw the blessings of heaven into the life of earth. How exciting is that? And we can know that as we ask, our prayers are being heard and they're being answered, including those prayers on behalf of others who may be caught in sin. That's a whole section in here that we don't really have time to delve into. And our prayers, however, are not always answered as we expect. But the point seems to be that as we learn to see and know God as love, as one who wants to be in constant communication with his dear children, then we learn to experience the life of, of the triune God. These are things that, that John wants us to know on the basis of our beliefs. So as we move toward wrapping up, I want you to again notice the order of John's closing arguments. That believing precedes knowing. That faith comes before assurance. And that risk is usually required before clarity. This is the opposite of a Gnostic orientation, which is all about holding up special insider knowledge as primary and never having to put flesh on it. Christianity, on the other hand, is always an invitation to trust. As we sang earlier, oh, for grace to trust him more. Trust itself is a gift that we receive, but it's not a blind trust. And the story of scripture bears this out, that God has made the first move. And God continues to initiate and make the first move in our experience in Christ through the Spirit so that we have confidence in approaching him and enjoying this relationship. For some reason, this old U2 song was kind of bouncing around in my head as I was preparing for this, too. And I'm sad that Sherry Vance Bronson is no longer in the room. She's a huge fan of U2. 
Just joking. Um, here's what Bono wrote. You're packing a suitcase for a place none of us has been, a place that has to be believed to be seen. I think that resonates, or would resonate, with John in terms of what he's trying to get on about in this. Oh, for grace to trust him more so that we can know. I want to invite us to just a couple moments of reflection. I don't know if you're an experience like these believers in 1 John who are experiencing their faith being shaken for, for whatever reason it happens to be, but there's a good chance that someone in the room is experiencing that, some test, some stretch, some challenge. It could be a, a prayer that is just ongoingly, seemingly unanswered. It, it seems to be falling on deaf ears. Um, it could be that there's the, the pull of other narratives that you're experiencing. Oh, yeah, I know this is the, the, the true, the narrow way that I've been invited into. I feel embraced by it. But wow, there's some other compelling stories out there that I could easily choose to model my life after and things would be a lot easier. I don't know whether your faith is being shaken by the experience in the wider world of seemingly escalating injustice and, and incredible pain. I don't know what that's doing to your faith it could be your own self-perception. Maybe it's something a little bit closer to home. Maybe you're feeling that a sense of unworthiness or, or just being not enough. But whatever your experience, I invite you to hear John's encouragement that, that our faith is anchored and rooted in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who came, who was sent from God to invite us into relationship with him and a relationship that we can experience now, a relationship that is meant to be incarnated through the way we live, We've talked about that theme many, many times in loving one another, in loving the outsider, those that are not yet in the room. That's the kind of faith that we want to embody and to hang on to and to grip to, but there are always things that, that can tend to get in the way. So I invite you, in a couple of moments of stillness here, before we come to the table, um, to invite God to search your heart. If it's, if it's not surfacing, perhaps it will if we have a bit of stillness together. Um, how's your faith doing? Where is it being shaken? What's testing it? What's pulling at it? What's stretching it? And I invite you to pray, and I will pray for you for the grace to trust him more and to continue in that journey, whatever it is. So let's be still together just for a couple of moments and invite God to be present to us as individuals and as a community. God, as we quiet our hearts, as we quiet the room, as much as we're able, as much as that's in our control, uh, we invite the grace of awareness to know what you're drawing our attention to and also the grace to trust you more. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the witness of 1 John. Thank you.
you for this letter. Thank you for an apostle who cared deeply about the faith of his community, about other competing, conflicting, sometimes dominating stories. Thank you that he took time, he took pains, he made the effort to write these things down. Thank you for the way in which they still resonate in our setting today. Thank you also for the witness of uh, the rest of Scripture that bears out what John is claiming and helps us to anchor our faith in something that is more sure, more deep, more verifiable. Thank you for the witness of the great cloud of witnesses, the many who have come before us who have sought to walk this path. I pray for an assurance that would meet us as individuals wherever we are, at the point where we are experiencing the greatest test and strain and struggle. I pray that we would learn to rely on one another, that we would seek out prayer from, for, by, with each other, that we would make loans of faith to one another. I pray, God, for your spirit to continue to strengthen and build your church among us and around us. pray that you give us greater courage to incarnate your gospel in ways large and small with our families, with our neighbors, with friends, with the stranger. That we would learn to embody the life of Christ in our city in this time. Just so aware of how much this is needed in this moment in history, in 2017. And so just we call upon you to do what only you can do. Continue to be alive in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen.